Okay, welcome to Full Cast and Crew. I am joined today by my friend and colleague, Bruce Edwards. Bruce, welcome. Thank you, Jason. Bruce, you and I go back to 2000, 2001? 2001. And you were a college student. Yes. And you were working where at the time? VH1, Video House 1, as it was only recently, you know. Wait, uh, they didn't call it Video House, did no, they? No, but in, yeah. Like well, right it was before. Video Hits 1. I think it was Video House. No, no, no. Video Hits 1. Are you sure? Yes, I'm positive. That was such a fun time. Basically, yes. if you worked at VH1 or MTV Networks between 1994 and, let's say, 2004, you had a lot of fun. Yes, this I is mean, true. It was about 300 people in their 20s. And 30s. <laughs> yes, exactly. Right? All working together on a floor. You could go many floors in the buildings at 1515 or 1633 Broadway in New York City and really only encounter a 40 or 50 year old like behind the glass wall of an office that you never went to. Right. Literal toys everywhere. Toys People everywhere, riding yeah. skateboards. Right. People shooting each other with Nerf guns. Flavor Flav walking around thanking people for shows we had nothing to do with. <laughs> we're like, Those were good days, welcome, man. Flavor Flav. Now, Bruce, let's go back a little earlier in your life. When did you become a science fiction geek? Jeez. What do you prefer, uh, geek, nerd? I prefer geek. And I do have a very clear distinction between the two. I know you do. Would you like to hear that? Yes, I would like to hear it. So a geek, I mean, the technical dictionary definition of a geek is from the circus, and they were the guys who would bite the heads off of chickens. And it has luckily since evolved from there. But my distinction is that a nerd is someone with who is very, very smart in a, a useful way. So in other words, I they're like very, it. very smart about math or science or history or something like that. And they also uh, sort of have a side interest in, you know, the more esoteric things like comic books and movies, et cetera. But that's only sort of like because they, they have so much going on in their minds and, and they, when they get into something, they really get into it because they're able to sort of handle it. A geek, on the other hand, is someone who is has an obsessive knowledge about completely useless things like movies and toys and video games and comic books and things like that. And that doesn't really translate into anything particularly useful. Wait, you're splitting the hair pretty fine here because it sounds like you just said the exact same thing. No, no, no. A nerd, again, is someone who's very smart in something that is very useful, like math or science. So, but then you also said science fiction or comic books. But or, they have, so they have their sort of, there's a Venn diagram, right? And they, they intersect in that stuff. Okay. They might and get they out and like interact with actual other human beings in the world. Right. And, the uh, well, nerd, I, I would say geeks actually are the more social of, of the two animals. Well, probably, but amongst themselves. Right. The nerds then, ha that's how they come together is like Star Trek and Star Wars right. and all of this sort of thing. Okay. So you're a geek. I'm a geek. But no, you're a nerd. You're very smart. You're very intelligent. Oh, and you're useful. About that. Uh, well, yes. But not, not, I don't know. I'm not a, I, I wouldn't say I'm a nerd on paper. I think I'm, a, I'm definitely a geek. Okay. And where and when did you grow up? What era, what's your era? Oh boy. Are you a uh, 90s child? No, I'm an 80s kid. Okay, you're an 80s kid. You grew up Hardcore in New Jersey? New Jersey. Hardcore New Jersey. You uh, told me that you worked at the Starlog store at the Garden State Plaza Mall. I what did. years would that have been? That would have been the mid to late 90s. And it was it was actually the exact kind of wrong time to have a store like that because it was before the Matrix, so that that should date it, right? Sure. 
and Nightmare Before Christmas had already come out. I think that was 97. You must have been psyched to get a job at the Star oh, yeah. store at the Garden State Mall. Hell yeah. We so what did the store consist of at that time? What was inside the store? Well, so it was a very large retail space. And in the back of the store, you had to walk through sort of the main part of the store. And to the left was a very long wall of comic books. Mm-hmm. There were racks, you know, sort of stands and everything with toys and action figures and T-shirts and things like that. That, that took up sort of the main space. But in the back, you had to step up like three or four steps into what is called the Star Trek room. And it, and it was dark and it, it kind of had some Was it elements. like the bridge? Yeah, it had some elements that made it look, not exactly like the bridge, but it did look like, oh, this, if I close my eyes, I could feel like I'm on the starship, especially because they 24-7 played uh, the, the soundtracks from the shows, the movies. Uh, I had one particularly enthusiastic manager at one point that learned Klingon. So I probably wow. actually know so some Klingon in the back be, of my head. He would be a geek. Uh, oh, yeah. He's so if you learn Klingon, you are a geek, not a nerd. Ah, see, that's a, that is a fine distinction because usually nerds are very dedicated to what they're learning and they would learn Klingon. Whereas a geek is more like, I have a bunch of interests hmm. and I have I like this and that and the other thing. I don't know that they would dedicate themselves to to Klingon necessarily. Okay. I would anyway. be confused as to the differentiation between the two, but that doesn't matter. But yeah, it was it was the exact wrong time because it was before The Matrix hit, and I, and I credit The Matrix for bringing back an interest in sci-fi and comics. Well, comic amongst your generation. And, yes, exactly. Right. Okay. And we, we closed, I think, right before that hit. I got to meet David Prowse there. I was, I was an Imperial uh, uh, guard at one point. Hi, it's Jason. Just a quick interjection. If you're not a geek or a nerd, Bruce just mentioned meeting David Prowse. Prowse is best known for physically portraying Darth Vader in the three original Star Wars movies. If you're listening in the UK, you may also know him as the first Green Cross Code Man a character used in British road safety advertising aimed at children. Now, Prowse actually spoke Vader's dialogue during filming, but Lucas later replaced him with James Earl Jones's voice. Lucas deemed Prowse's West Country accent unsuitable for the character. Prowse claims he was originally told he'd be seen and heard at the end of Return of the Jedi, but instead, actor Sebastian Shaw was used. Carrie Fisher used to joke that on set they referred to Prowse as Darth Farmer in reference to his aforementioned West Country accent. From such perceived slights do disruptions in the Force originate. Now, if you're thinking about using this newfound knowledge to pass at a Star Wars convention, you won't see David Prowse there. In 2010, he was reportedly banned from all official Star Wars conventions by Lucasfilm for, quote, burning too many bridges. It just goes to show you that in the Star Wars universe, never forget, George Lucas is your father. Now back to my discussion about Alien with Bruce. And my one very cool sort of interaction was my friend and I were helping this guy out. He was picking out uniforms in the, in the Star Trek room. He's very into it, very knowledgeable. And we kept looking at each other like, who is this guy? We recognized him. We just could not place him. We thought, did we go to high school with him? I had no idea. He was older than us. But we were like, who, who is this guy? We're, we checked him out. So, you know, we're watching him go up the escalator. And my friend slaps me and he goes, Laszlo! I said, oh my God, Laszlo from Real Genius. John Grease, yeah. Yes, John Grease. Laszlo, I'm so glad you came out. You want a hamburger? I, I've been thinking about your laser solution. Oh, good. I, I figure you, you've increased the power output to six megawatts. Yeah, about that. Well, what would you use that for? Making enormous Swiss cheese. <laughs> the applications are unlimited. No. With the fuel you've come up with, the beam would last for, what, 15 seconds? What good is that? Oh, Laszlo, that doesn't matter. I respect you, but I graduated. 
They'll let the engineers figure out a use for it. That's not our concern. Maybe somebody already has a use for it. One for which it is specifically designed. You mean Dr. Hathaway had something in mind all along? Look at the facts. Very high power, portable, limited firing time, unlimited range. All you need is a tracking system and, and, a, and a large spinning mirror and you could vaporize a human target from space. This is not good. Laszlo Hollyfield. Yes, and when we recognized him... Great movie, by the way, Real Genius. Oh, definitely. That's a very underrated science fiction comedy. Val Kilmer. Uh, directed by a woman. Did not know that. Martha Coolidge. Yes. I often wonder, I was like, what's my favorite movie directed by a woman? I thought Wayne's World, but I guess... Speaking of Starlog, I want to play this for you. I couldn't find a commercial from the Garden State Plaza Mall, oh, but I did find a Starlog magazine TV oh commercial God. from 1984. Let's hear it. Starlog magazine takes you on incredible science fiction trips into the world of Star Trek, into space, video games, and into the Star Wars galaxy, into the future for previews of new movies and TV programs. Starlog magazine shows you special effects secrets, Blueprints and robots, spaceships and aliens, interviews with writers, movie makers, heroes, and villains. Starlog is the most popular science fiction magazine in the solar system. Buy Starlog at any newsstand or subscribe now and save money. For six fantastic issues, mail $14.98 to Starlog, Box 4048, Atlanta, Georgia, 30359. A magazine of the future. Can you imagine getting your shit together enough as a teenager to actually get a check from your mom and mail it to a P.O. box in Atlanta, Georgia in order to get Starlog magazine? Do you know who would do that? A you. nerd. <laughs> you, you grew up under difficult circumstances. You had yes. a chaotic youth and childhood. Yes. Was science fiction a particular part of your youth? I was much more into action movies and comedies, believe it or not. Okay. That's why I would dare myself to go in the video store and look at all the mm -hmm. boxes on the wall. That was as kind of far as I went, but I never really like was like dove into it because it scared me. I had nightmares. I was scared of the, the thriller video, right? <laughs> Which I was deathly afraid of it. That's and, heartbreaking, Bruce. And, and with... So there was, I don't, you might remember, WPIX used to have Chiller Theater. Of you course. You this? Chill, yeah. And you remember the, the, the promo for it and the intro? Yeah. Had a very creepy hand coming sure, up out of the ground. creepy hand coming up out of the ground, yeah. For some reason, attached that to Thriller. I think Chiller, sure. Thriller. So whatever it was. Probably the single hand. And we lived in a house at the time where the, the basement was like nightmare fuel, right? <laughs> it was like, it, it was not finished. Like there was yeah. a huge stone wall with a dark hole in it. Jesus. Inexplicable hole. I don't I know hope why you never watched Amityville there. Horror in oh, the day. Yeah, I avoided that like the plague. When Thriller would come on the radio, and by the way, people, that was the only way you could hear music back then. <laughs> My sisters would take we the boombox. pre-MTV? Pre, no, I mean, this was around You just didn't MTV, have cable. But like, yeah. We you guys were getting cable. Yeah, we, don't, we didn't have cable. So she, they would take the radio when Thriller come on, came on and would chase me with the radio, with the Jesus. song, because I was so afraid. I would run into that basement. Why would you go to the basement? You're like a character because in a bad horror movie. I think, in retrospect, I think they planned it. I think they were, you know, sort and of- would they lock the door? Shepherding me, yes. leave you in the basement? Yes, they would do that. That's yes. traumatizing, Look, Bruce. dude, we can go- <laughs> But, so that's the point. I was scared of horror movies. <laughs> then I saw Alien, and I saw that there was sort of a beauty and a and mm. a 
visceralness mm -hmm. and this this sort of value mm -hmm. to watching these kinds of movies that were done so well that could have such an effect, but not in a sort of trashy way. Because I did yeah. I did end up seeing you know Friday Thirteenth all that, and I knew I was like oh, this is kind of shit. You know yeah. what I mean? This is like they're doing this to get a rise out of me, well, and you, I don't really. You appreciate must have had that. a hard time finding something as good as Alien. That's the thing, and that and it was almost <laughs> like chasing a high that you never yeah got to, and it almost was like more inspiring. I was so into it. I made I didn't have a video club subscription. Remember, you had to like actually belong sure. to a video store. Um, my friends. Mom did, but it was at a video store in the town over. I think it was Passaic, right? And it was it, it had just been a blizzard, and this is not an exaggeration. It had just been a blizzard, uh, and it was like snowdrifts, like up to our knees. And I was like, Dennis, we are walking to the video store. <laughs> and we are getting this movie <laughs> on your mom's account, on his mom's account, and we did. Have you already seen it, or this was when you? First I had saw already it? seen it. I was forcing him to see. You're it. like, we have to watch. We this. have to watch immediately and and as often as possible. Wow, slogging through snow. We did it, and we got it. He loved it. We watched it many times. I don't think he ever actually returned that that VHS tape. And his, of course not. His mother had to go to a different video. Now, store. when you watch with your own children, do you tell them <laughs> when I was your age, I used to slog through a snowstorm to Passaic to rent this movie? I will when they're allowed to <laughs> to watch it. Certainly, Alien really did things differently and really was sort of like an atom bomb. When I saw it originally, I must have been, I don't know, 10 years old, 11 years old, whatever it was. I I knew that it had this very particular effect on me. And I knew that the alien in Alien was such a sort of a mindfuck of a concept. Right. Everything about it, like how the face hugger worked, how the egg worked, how the alien grew and and we didn't understand where it came from and just the way it looked was so literally alien that was set my mind running you know i have the creative side of me that yes you know so it would always set my sort of mind running i'm like where could this thing possibly come from why how could it exist you know and it would it just sort of was this creative explosion that I sort of have never recovered from. You know what I mean? It, mm -hmm. it, it just gets the juices running yeah. in a way that nothing else kind of does. Here's some cornbread. I am cold. Still with us, Brett? Right. Yeah. Oh, I feel dead. Anybody ever tell you you look dead? <laughs> oh, yeah, right. I just forgot something, man. Uh, before we dock, mm. I think we ought to discuss the bonus situation. Right. Brett and right. I, we think we ought to, we deserve full shares, right, right baby? You see, Mr. Park and I feel that the bonus situation has never been on a, an equitable level. Well, you get what you contracted for like everybody else. Yes, but everybody else uh, gets more than us. Oh, his mother wants to talk to you. Uh, yes, uh, you lights from my eyes only. Okay, you dressed, huh? Parker? Can I finish my coffee? It's the only thing good on this ship. I mean, it's been amazing for me to dip into Alien again and to watch all the materials that are available and the making of things and to realize all over again and to truly appreciate there's no such thing as a perfect movie, but Alien comes as close as maybe any movie I can think of as a cinematic experience is still so refreshingly creepy and weird and masterful, which is amazing when you consider the origins of it and the director of it 
many people involved with it did not come at all from the world of science fiction mm -mm. and these types of movies. And were in fact uh, opposed were to opposed being to in science fiction or horror or anything like that. Yeah. So yeah, and, and at the time that you saw this movie, you, you couldn't just go onto the internet and learn everything about, oh, oh no, no, no. the reason I love those things is Hans Rudi Giger any, or, or, or Ron Cobb or any of the, the people involved in designing the movie. Right. And, and, and Giger will talk, obviously, at some length about because without him, you don't have many of the creepiest elements of the film. Right. But at the time, your mind is just blown. Yes. And you don't really have the ability to figure out who, what, where, when, or why. Right. You are motivated to, as I yes. was. And I remember distinctly going into comic book stores and looking at Starlog, Cinefix, uh, you know, Heavy Metal, like sure. all of those sort looking of- Looking for clues. Looking for clues. Finding out who H.R. Giger was. All right. Let's talk a little bit about the origin, I want to say myth, of Alien, because like most movies that have become such a era-jumping significance, the creation myth takes a little work to pin down. You could listen to Dan O'Bannon. Wow. Uh, you could listen to Walter Hill and David Geiler, um, and you could have two different opinions as to who did what and when. But I think we can agree that the origins of the film lie with Dan O'Bannon yes. and Ronald Shusett. Yes. Dan O'Bannon wrote a script. He had gone to film school, I believe, with John Carpenter. John Carpenter. And they made a movie called Dark Star, which was a science fiction comedy that- which I got through 20 minutes of yesterday. So he made that, and he had the idea- that he would do Dark Star, but but serious. Right, because he was not happy with it. He wasn't happy. Comedy. Dan O'Bannon, who is an interesting character and sort of lifelong science fiction geek. I don't know. I think he might be a nerd. See, I'm going to get it wrong. <laughs> okay, he's a nerd. No, he, he might be a geek, because I don't well, know. Well, he wears a bow tie and suspenders. Yeah, it's pretty nerdy. So that's nerdy. That's nerdy. Anyway, he came up with a screenplay, which I think he called... Star Beast. Star Beast. He was hired by Jodorowsky. Jodorowsky, yes. For his Dune adaptation. And after Jodorowsky's Dune famously collapsed under the weight of its own incredibly ambitious scope, Dan O'Bannon returns to Hollywood and is sort of literally living on Ronnie Schusset's couch and wondering what the hell to do with himself. The only thing that he really had was this kind of half-finished screenplay for Star Beast, and he showed it to Ronnie Shusett, and over, I guess, a couple of weeks, they talked about how to kind of finish it from the point where O'Bannon had gotten it. And it was Ronnie Shusett who came up with the idea for how the alien gets on board the spacecraft, because mm -hmm. that was one of the things O'Bannon hadn't yet solved. Yep. Dan said, somehow, the monster has to get on board the ship in a way that'll amaze everybody. And so I wake up in the middle of the night, and I said, Dan, I have an idea. And he said, what? And I said... The monster screws one of the people. He says, what? What are you talking about? I said, he jumps in his face, plants a tube down him, inserts his seat in him, and later it comes bursting out of his stomach. And Dan goes, oh, my God, that's the most amazing thing I've ever heard. Nobody's ever seen anything like that. And we just sat up all night, and we wrote. And in three weeks, we had what would, I would say, which is 85% of the plot, the structure. We didn't write the screenplay right there, of what you saw it became alien, 85%. I think O'Bannon had the chestburster Yeah, because in he has Crohn's disease, or he had Crohn's disease, and that inspired him so, to... So he says. Well, yeah, yeah that's, that's the, again, the legend. That's we're, we're the legend. Print the legend. Print the legend. Print the legend. What was said. Yes. Uh, my take on the Ronnie Shusett O'Bannon script, which was shopped around and didn't find any studio willing to take it, except... Roger Corman's studio, because right. really these two guys thought of it as a B picture, a Roger Corman level picture. Right. They did not think of it 
as something that would have the artistic and commercial legacy that Alien has gone on to have at all. Way, right. One of Ronnie Schusett's friends was friends with Walter Hill and David Geiler. The revisions that Walter Hill and David Geiler made are what allowed Alien on paper to have a chance at becoming what it became, yes. much more so than what Dan O'Bannon and Ronnie Schusett had submitted on paper. The characterizations were not there. The dialogue was not there. It was a B picture as written. Right. It was, a, you know what it reminded me of reading it was a, like a pulp fiction yes. story. Like it, yeah. I literally kept picturing like pulp magazine yes. when I was reading it. Uh, did you know that Walter Hill uh, did rename all the characters in the script? Yes. And did you know that some of them are named after athletes? I didn't. I didn't know that little so fact. Brett, who is played by Harry Dean Stanton, uh, was named for George Brett. Parker was named for Dave Parker of the Pittsburgh Pirates. And Lambert was named after Jack Lambert of the Steelers. Wow. Walter Hill also named Ripley Ripley. And also, Walter Hill and David Geiler were the two people who pushed for Ripley and Lambert to be female. Yes. Because in O'Bannon and, and Schuster's original script, everybody was male. However, they did on, and, and Schuster's very sort of proud of this, they did on the cover of their screenplay say, by yes. the way, anyone can be anyone. It's unisex. It's intended to be unisex. However, when you read it, it's clear everybody's a man. It's clear everyone's and a it's man. And it's literally no women in the, in the movie at all. In fact, the Walter Hill and David Geiler script, uh, character descriptions and dialogue actually reminds me a lot of John Carpenter's character descriptions and dialogue from a film that would come out a few years later in The Thing, which is oh, obviously baby. so influenced by this movie. Yes. And it's similarly a genre picture treated with serious intent. Yes. And I, by the way, weirdly, you were you're talking about a perfect movie before. Weirdly, the three movies that I would consider very close to perfect are all man versus monster movies. They're Alien, The Thing, and Jaws. Yeah. I, they, those are... Those are all pretty damn perfect. You know what I mean? I think they are all... I think what helps, they all have a very lean, mm -hmm. tight... There's really not not much else besides we got to survive. You know, we're here. There's no wasted shots. Nothing. It's In fact, we had this conversation when we did Jaws on the pod. It's jarring to watch some of the deleted scenes you can see from Jaws. You're almost retroactively freaked out that that might have ended up in the movie. Right. There's this scene with, you know, Quint in a music store, like scaring a child. Hello, Mr. Quint. How are you, Katie? Looking well. Thank you. Four spools of piano wire, number 12. Sure. What do those fish do? Eat that stuff? Well, they choke on it. And it's so jarring because there is not one wasted frame in Jaws. There's not one wasted frame in Alien, and there really isn't a wasted frame in The Thing either. I agree with you. I would say Jaws, over all of them, is such a titanic thing, no pun intended, because you could not be into science fiction. I'm not into monsters, and you could still have gone and seen Jaws. 100%. Jaws was like a megaton bomb going off. Right. These movies, while successful at their time, although The Thing was not successful. Not at all. In fact, it ruined John Carpenter's career for a it number of years. Ruined his life, I would uh, argue. But Alien was phenomenal. Alien rode the wave of Star Wars into yes. round the block, 
seeing it over and over again. Uh, it crossed over. It made a ton of money. It was a thing. Walter Hill and David Geiler rewrite the script a few times, and they do so in such a fashion that Alan Ladd Jr. says, yes, we will make this movie. Walter Hill petitioned the Writers Guild for sole writing credit, which I don't think is right. No. However, I think that an equitable thing would have been for them all to have shared screenplay credit. Right, not However, story by. Not story by. And now the, the, the credit was awarded solely to Dan O'Bannon in the, in the arbitration process, which I think really gives short shrift to the contribution that Walter Hill and David Geiler made to the script. But hey, they did all right for themselves. They did all right. Well, they did have to sue 20th Century Fox twice for wow. profits because Alien famously was one of the examples of Hollywood accounting where it had done so well, yet 20th Century Fox was saying, we still haven't recouped our initial investment in the ah. film. And so we go through the rewrite process. Ridley Scott finally becomes attached. I think Walter Hill was approached to direct the movie and then was too busy yes. with some other projects. I think Ridley Scott was the fifth director, fifth choice after everyone. They had one director come in. I don't recall his name, but he had directed, you know, some 70s, 60s, you know, pretty pretty decent movies. Mm -hmm. And he came in. They, he said the meeting was very short. They asked him how he would do the face hugger. And he just sort of offhandedly said, I don't know, I'll just get some like sheep intestines and throw it on their face. Who cares? Nobody's going nobody's gonna to care. Yeah. And they were like, thank you, no. Thank you, no. <laughs> Essentially. Yeah, that's not going to work for us. Let's jump into the movie a little bit. So we mentioned Truckers in Space, which was sort of one of the great innovations of Alien, as opposed to Star Wars, which had sort of swashbuckling kind of uh, fantasy. fantasy characters. In Alien, all of a sudden, you've got kind of these working class people thrust into space, and space is not a pristine environment. It's a, I can't remember the term that was coined to you, like a, a, a used uh, future. Everything is, is heavily used. The beginning of Alien is beautiful. The, this is another thing that, that uh, Walter Hill and David Geiler contributed to the screenplay is the efficiency of the opening scenes where we're just seeing the uninhabited corridors and rooms of the spaceship. Au contraire, mon frère, that is in the first screenplay, that is in their That's original. in there, but in a much different way. Okay. That's in a, in a much different I, way. I remember reading it, I was like, oh, that was there from, from the first screenplay. I was shocked that it, that It was there of, somewhat. Yeah. However- the succinctness with which Walter Hill and David Geiler kind of trimmed that down added to this sense of foreboding and mystery, whereas the way it was written in O'Bannon and Schuster's script is like, these guys were nerds, these guys were geeks. There are like drawings in the screenplay. <laughs> it's like, guys, oh, here, by the way, is a, a hand-drawn picture of how we see this solar system. I, I would have done that <laughs> so, as a nerd. I'm just saying, Walter Hill and David Geiler were like, Boom, yes. shot, 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 shot. And that's really what we get in Ridley Scott's right. version. And they were and professionals. They did a they did a they great did a, yes. a great draft. They did a great cleanup of, of yes. an okay script. Basically. Exactly. So here is after they wake from their hibernation chambers, we come to find out the ship has waked them and they gather to hear the reason why. What's happening now, baby? Well, some of you may have figured out we're not home yet. We're only halfway there. What? Mother's interrupted the course of our journey. Why? Yeah. She's programmed to do that should certain conditions arise. They have. Like what? Seems she has intercepted a transmission of unknown origin. She got us up to check it out. A transmission? Out here? Yeah. What kind of a transmission? Acoustical beacon that uh, repeats at intervals of 12 seconds. 
SOS. I don't know. Human. Unknown. So what? <laughs> we are obligated under section. Well, I hate to bring this up, but uh, this is a commercial ship, not a rescue ship. Right. <laughs> it's not my contract to do this kind of duty. And what about the money? If you want to give me some money to do, I'd be happy to. Uh, you know, watch. Let's, right. Let's go over the bonus situation. We never can we, can we just talk about the bonus situation. Sorry, can I say something? Let's talk about the bonus situation. There is a clause in the contract which specifically states any systematized transmission indicating a possible intelligent origin must be investigated. I don't want to hear it. We don't know that's intelligent. I want to go home and party. Parker, will you just listen to the man? A penalty of total forfeiture of shares. You got that? <laughs> well, yeah. <laughs> All right, we're going in. Yeah. We're going in. Aren't we? Such efficient character introduction. Yep. The acting is amazing. You know what, Bruce? We've done 65 movies on the podcast. I can't think of another movie that only has seven people listed in the cast. I've never wow. seen a movie other than maybe My Dinner with Andre with fewer people in it. Uh, just a few days ago, I met this man whom I greatly admire. He's a Swedish physicist, Gustav Bjornstrand. And he told me that he no longer watches television, he doesn't read newspapers, and he doesn't read magazines. He's completely cut them out of his life because he really does feel that we're living in some kind of Orwellian nightmare now and that everything that you hear now contributes to turning you into a robot. That is a great point. Can you name another movie that has as few cast members? Predator. Predator? Yeah. Schwarzenegger? Let me see. Carl Weathers. My my friend uh, Billy. The uh... Billy Zabka? No. <laughs> um... Oh, no. There's a, there's, there's, a, there's a dozen cast members. Well, that's not that One, much two, more three, than four, seven. Five, six, seven, eight, nine, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, 16 people in that cast. So that's almost three times as many cast members as are in All right, AI. good point. I'm saying that's a, I, I really think, tight. can't it's think tight. of another movie that's so engrossing and engaging where, let alone having seven people, by the last third of the movie, you only have one. <laughs> that's great. That's a great point, yeah. <laughs> you know? Ten Little Indians, that's how he got Harry Dean Stanton, because Harry Dean Stanton came on and said... First meeting we had, I said, I don't like science fiction films or monster pictures. I opened with that. <laughs> Which is obviously a good opening. And he said, well, actually, I, um, I don't either, but I think I can make something of this one. And he was right. And that's another thing. It's so many things. It's not just an alien movie. It's not just a science fiction movie. It's a horror movie. It's a haunted house movie. It's a thriller. It's an action movie. You know, it's, it's so many different things that mm -hmm. all, it's just such a unique blend that, again, I, people have been chasing that for decades now, 40 years, 40 plus years. And when Ridley Scott came aboard, he had uh, worked with Mary Goldberg, who is the casting director yes. on his first film, The Duelists, which is what brought him to the attention of many people involved with the production. So this is Ridley Scott's second film. He, as you mentioned, had no science fiction bona fides, no horror bona fides. He told Mary Goldberg, look, I want to hire really good actors. Yeah. And he said, I don't really want to have to worry about the acting side of it because I'm going to be so busy on the set with the effects side of everything. Let's remember, we're in, we are pre-CGI. Way pre-CGI. Uh, they're even pre-motion control graphics. Like, it's models and cinematography. Right. And there's matte paintings. And, and it's essential because it 
grounds you in something that is very not grounded. And without that, you're just watching sort of another like, all right, impress me with the alien or mm-hmm. this, the scenario. And it's like you care about these people immediately because you know these people. I know, you know, that, oh, that guy reminds me of my uncle, you know, or whatever it is. It's like that that one sort of simple guideline that Ridley Scott brought to it was so effective mm-hmm. for the rest of it. Let's talk a little bit about alternative casting. Oh, yeah. What might have been. Put that one back. Well, Gordon Carroll says that Meryl Streep was one of the names considered. But he said that at the time, John Cazal had just died. Yes. And he didn't think she should be brought in and made to audition at that time. All right. Uh, Because I guess apparently she, you know, you had to fly in and do this. It would have been a little bit disruptive. Right. So... Sigourney Weaver, who was a stage actor of note at the time in New York City, uh, hadn't done a film before and kind of had that perfect quality and combination required for Ripley. Tommy Lee Jones had been sent the script by Ridley and he called Ridley and said, you know, the only character that really grabs me here is the monster. But if you will let me play the monster, I'm in. That didn't work. Oh, Tommy. And the other interesting casting thing was that John Hurt was not originally cast for the part. In fact, they had another actor actually shooting. And the actor that was going to play Kane later, for one reason or another, had to drop out. That night, um, we had a quick regroup in the office. And um, that night, I drove to Hampstead Village and met with John Hurt. Then they heard that I was then free. So Ridley Scott came to me and we talked till gone midnight, say, on the Monday. Prepared him, of course, for what what it was. And uh, he said, so when do I start? And I said, tomorrow morning. And on the Tuesday morning, I was on the set at 7.30. He literally shot the next morning. Right. No preparation, show up, jump right in. And of course, I'm not sure anyone knew at the time that Kane and the chestburster scene would be among the most iconic in all of horror and science fiction. And movies. And movies, period. Uh, But it certainly was. Ridley Scott, he made all the actors leave the set while they were prepping it so that they wouldn't see, first of all, what the chestburster looked like, the actual little baby alien, because he wanted that visceral reaction from them when they first saw it. And it definitely worked, especially with Veronica Cartwright, mostly because she didn't know the amount of blood that would hit her. And she really screamed and she backed up and literally fell over because there was something behind her. And she she figured they were still shooting. So she continued to scream and and, and react. The effect, uh, and, and by the way, it was so well edited as the whole movie is but that scene specifically again so tight and so so crisp with what exactly is shown and how long you see everything that lends you know so much credence to what's actually happening besides the performances besides the special effects i mean everything just worked together so so well the first thing that i'm going to do when i get back is to get some decent food. You can dig it, man. I'm telling you, I'm eating bird's food in this, but then I'll taste it better, you know what I'm saying? Yeah, you pound down the stuff like this. Uh-huh. Listen, I'd rather be eating something else, but uh, right now I'm digging food. Uh-huh. <laughs> you should know you know what it's made of. I know that. I don't want to talk about what it's made of. I'm eating this. <laughs> What's the matter? The food ain't that bad, oh, baby. <laughs> Go for Charles. 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 Charles.
Also in the chestburster scene, one of the things that makes it so terrifying is Lambert's, oh my God. Oh my God. <laughs> it was authentic. It was authentic. I loved in the making of the show, uh, John Hurt or the model of John Hurt's torso. And there's the, the effects guy literally has the chestburster, which looks like a penis with mm -hmm. Jaws's teeth from uh, James Bond, right, right? Right. And he literally has him like on a little stick, like a hot dog on a stick or a giant phallus on a stick, poking him up and making him turn and breathe. And the way they got the tail to move so brilliantly was they just used compressed air and mm -hmm. he shot compressed air through this rubbery tail and it looks so creepy and effective yep. running away from them. It's quite simply one of the greatest scenes in the history of the movies. What's incredible watching Alien, it's worth watching just for Ian Holm and Ash. Right. Spoiler alert for 1979's Alien. But Ash is a robot and is a plant from the corporation who is fully aware of the mission to go and try and trap this incredible weapon and bring it back. And when you know that and you watch the film again, I just noticed it in this scene for the first time and I just watched the movie twice in preparation for this, how once John Hurt sits down and begins eating, there's a cutaway to Ash looking at him as if he's aware that something is going to happen. And when he starts coughing, he's just looking at he's him. He's just like, looking at him. He's now? not emotionally involved right. or charged. But the the this is part of the genius of the movie. The moment when you realize something is off with Ash is not when Yafet Koto knocks his head off with a fire extinguisher and wires and stuff pop out. But prior to that, when Ash confronts Ripley in Mother, the computer, and he is he is exercised at something and a little drop of milk-like liquid is coming down his forehead. Right. The first time you see that, it's so jarring and weird. And it, and what's brilliant about the movie is it doesn't pause to explain that. And it's not until the subsequent scene where there's a whole argument and a whole fight, and then it's revealed that Ash is a robot, that that pays off. It's a robot. Ash is a goddamn robot. That's such a bold and smart choice. Yeah, because you're you're asking yourself so many questions that you're further sort of like brought into as opposed to repelled from the sort of mystery of it and it and it makes you put your mind in the right place. Put it's exactly yeah. right for the tone of the movie because I guess maybe this android wasn't 
programmed for this, and mm-hmm. he's freaking out, and he tries mm-hmm. to kill her with a rolled up magazine. Like, what the hell? <laughs> like, but then that you think is so about weird. It, it's so weird. But then you think about it, you're like, yeah, that's probably what a fucking android. If you told an android to kill someone, they don't know. So he's just like trying to figure it out, I guess, kind of thing. And I think I think you mentioned before, it's part of the the brilliance of the movie, much like the thing is really alien in the frozen Antarctic. The genius innovation there is only once do you have to see a guy in a suit. John Carpenter famously didn't want to do a guy in a suit movie. Right. In Alien, you do have a guy in a suit eventually, which is really kind of the main drawback of most monster-oriented science fiction movies, even as Ridley Scott, you know, admits in the making of stuff. He's like, you got to eventually get to a guy in a suit. It's You, you can't really avoid it. The only it thing you can hope is. to do is try to make it as original as possible, which I definitely think they did. Paradigm shifting. Like like the, the originality of the monster in this movie has never been reached again. Because it takes so many different forms. I mean, besides that, but the, the design of it. Oh, the design, yeah. That HR You're talking about when you do see the guy in the suit. Yes, it's so yeah, that's unique sick. and terrifying. That's Giger, and man. It's got no eyes and it's like black, just utterly pitch black and like seven fingers or something you know what i mean it's just so friggin' weird but it, it you obviously can tell it's a predator it's literally just designed to kill you i'm still stunned even myself like i used to be too really into monsters and drawing when i was a kid mm-hmm. and i would constantly try to come up with my own what's more terrifying than that? I, I can't do it i don't know anyone who can well, it's a good segue to the work of Hans Rudi Giger and his importance to the film, because there's really no other designer as important to this movie, or maybe any movie, as Giger was and is to Alien. In addition to designing the the Alien, as you say, he also, from his painting Necronomicon, we have the space jockey scene. You can talk about fighting for something on a movie, especially the space jockey set, which I think uh, Ryan Schuess, it says, was like a four hundred and fifty or five hundred thousand dollar yeah. expenditure. Yep, and it's only in the movie once, right? <laughs> and he argued it's the my Cecil B. DeMille shot, and it, it has to be there. It has and to be there, and he's right. right. But at the time, you can imagine, you're a studio executive. You're like, guys, yeah, you're in there. I mean, maybe if you came back to it, it was important. Like, you're going to use it for a sequel. I'd listen, but five hundred grand. But it's that's that shot alone is maybe the shot that elevates the whole movie. shot it, that has stayed with me for 30 plus years the right. weirdness of how that giger designed space jockey looks in that strange telescopic like chair slash right the vastness of the room that's a haunting image that is manifest with so many things life death fossilization it's a it's a it's a harbinger of things to come because the space jockey has a 
bones burst right. out of his chest. Open. It's like a great painting where you're like, what am I looking at? And yeah. What, what's the story here? And you're, and you're left to wonder because they never, they never explain. You never understood really where the alien came from. All throughout growing up, I thought one of the strengths of this entire franchise was that how harsh and, and horrifying would a world need to be where you have to evolve this kind of reproduction system, blood, acid, blood, acid blood, to to avoid being killed, yeah. like able to regenerate. I mean, all of these things. It's like, wow, space is actually a terrifying place. Yeah, okay, maybe there's like green aliens out there that have laser guns and stuff, but this is beyond all. This is this is base. This is biology. This is you know, like just the universe not caring if you live or die, and that's a lot of again what makes what makes the movie work. And again, just from looking at it. Just from yes. what it does, not no one is saying that at any yes. point. But you're just left to think about it, and like it makes your mind go places that like movies up to that point hadn't done. I think you're so right, and I think that speaks to the genius of Hans Rudi Giger, whose artwork embodies everything you just said, just at a glance. You yes. can look at these drawings; they have a a black rubber metallic sheen of of automotion and mechanical nature yet they also have a extremely primal vaginal penile eroticism they have a brutality but they have beauty i did some drawings so ridley scott i like to have the exterior landscape the space jockey the exilo exterior interior all the alien surroundings and I was very happy to do that because uh, I could, I was not so limited. It's inconceivable that he didn't do what he did in this movie. The movie would simply not be what it is without Giger's completely fucked up and unique and brilliant view. The guy on the set of the space jockey was actually freaking hand airbrushed the yep. entire fucking thing. You know, he wanted it to be that that level of menace that you're talking about, but also that sense of beauty. Like when I see the space jockey, I do want to know more. Mm -hmm. And I did, I do. And it's amazing that you can watch Alien and not know, wait, was he delivering these things? Right. Or he crashed here and got one of these things got into him and left all these eggs and is, and, and is just lying in wait. And it's his last dying act was to say, stay away from here. Right. Which, of course, Ash and the computer deliberately misinterprets as an SOS beacon. To your point about the later films, the Prometheus and what's the other one? Prometheus, Covenant. Alien Covenant. Covenant. Yeah. I mean, I think that it was a worthy sequel topic to get into where it came from. And had this whole team been assembled again and been able to do that with a worthy script, I think that would have been good to do. But see, having seen Prometheus, I let's put it this way. I sat through Prometheus and I never bothered to see Covenant. Uh, it, and it didn't feel it, it didn't feel like an alien movie. It felt like a no. very slick uh, science fiction yes. movie. Yes. Uh, granted, but and and it was more about like the origin of mankind and religion than it was about man versus the universe and aliens and survival and all that stuff that that the original sort of slate of movies were and. 
Ridley Scott admits, you know, and by the way, he he borrowed a lot of ideas that didn't make it into the original Alien for the subsequent movies, like the the pyramid uh, that was in there, the original screenplay, the, the Dan O'Bannon cathedral or whatever, right? Um, which they end up going into in I think uh, Prometheus. If I remember where the space jockey is, you know, he mm-hmm. says exactly what the space jockey is, all that, all that kind of stuff. And to me, I do want to know more, but like, it's better to not know, especially with something frightening. It's better to not know. You're not like I don't want to know why you know Jason Voorhees comes back from the dead. I just he does. He just does. Well, I was going to ask you if you thought because I think that Alien is a particularly good example of how crass and poor sequelizing can be in success. Like none of the alien films subsequent to alien have hold anything near a candle to it. Aliens might be entertaining as a different type of movie, but it really has nothing to do with this movie. Yeah. You could, you could, with aliens, you could swap out granted the alien, the creature you yeah. could, for another set of creatures. Absolutely. However, the character Ripley being the strong, mm-hmm. uh, smart, uh, you know, resourceful. I think her character in Aliens yeah, done in is Alien. much more. I think they 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 round her out much more, yeah. and you're 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 Fair much enough. more invested in her, and like she becomes more of a person in Fair that enough. movie, and sure. her journey in that movie is fantastic, and it's a much more sort of emotional mm-hmm. movie than Alien. But that's not what Alien is for. Alien right. is a is a is a designed dark ride. Of of nonstop sort of like thrills and aliens is more of a you know woman against mm-hmm. woman kind of movie. Right. Ultimately, it's mom against mom, and as an action movie on a huge scale, so it, it's a completely different. Right. But what I'm saying is, once that once it becomes a property and we start figuring out how to make money off of it and do sequels. You, I mean, it, it always loses something. Absolutely. All you have to do is go see the most recent Star Wars movie to see that thing peter out. Well, well, we could discuss that. At another okay, time. so another brilliant thing I want to hit on is Jerry Goldsmith's score for the movie, oh, man, maybe. which is which again is another contentious element because Jerry Goldsmith himself seems like a pretty funny and contentious guy who mm-hmm. has, like many composers, extremely strong opinions about how his music should be used and should not be used. I wrote this very nice main title. It was this sort of mystery, but it was it was a lyrical mystery. It didn't go over too well, and uh, really, I had major disagreements over that. So then I subsequently wrote a new main title, which was the obvious thing, weird and strange, and which everybody loved, and I didn't love, and it was very interesting. Consequently, I. I kept getting kudos for years after on the main title I wrote for Alien, which was not exactly my choice. And the original one I wrote took me like a day to write it, and the, the alternate one took me about five minutes to write. He had written a much more orchestral, kind of sweeping classical music piece to go there, which of course they didn't like and didn't work. But one of the uses of his music that I find so emotionally powerful is when they first begin their descent to the alien planet. And just this music cue here, which I want to play for you as the ship makes an elegant turn to get ready to land, I think is such a great example of the brilliance of Jerry Goldsmith's music throughout this movie. Money's safe. Let's take you down. Roll 92 degrees, port your. Prime the port. 
In that scene alone, like the that that pacing, yes, that underscore, that sort of like menacing mm-hmm. drumbeat of when they're approaching the planet with that lyrical kind of violin mm-hmm. on top, is is the movie. It is in musical form. It's it really like is that that beauty mixed with that beauty and menace. Menace. It's yeah. just perfect. I mean, this is such a movie you could imagine watching the dailies for, and just you'd have no idea how good it's going to be without right. the sound design, without the music. Right. So I think his score is just incredible. I really enjoyed listening to it. It's I. You might not know this about me, but I listen to movie score music. I did know that about you, actually. Daily, In yes. fact, you're the guy who got me into listening to movie score Amazing. music. Amazing. Did you know that Ridley Scott originally wanted Isao Tomita to do the music for this film? No, I don't. Are you familiar with the work of Isao Tomita? I am not. A Japanese music composer who is regarded as one of the pioneers of electronic music and space music. And is one of the first people to do a lot of analog synthesizer arrangements in the late 60s and early 70s. Okay, and I could, I could see that, why he would want that. It would yeah. kind of fit. And Well, here, listen to a little Isao Tomita and see if maybe you change your mind. This is from Tomita's 1974 seminal vinyl album, Electric Samurai, Switched on Rock. Wow, it's an album of covers of popular music, all done in this fashion. And this is where Ridley Scott was like, dude, this is called Well, to perfect. be fair, I'm, I'm choosing a particularly humorous example yes. from... But yeah, this is 1974. I mean, maybe Ridley was listening to this at the time and thought, hey. So the Jerry Goldsmith score that we ended up with is extremely fortunate. Uh, it's a great score, even though... He's not very settled with it, even in 2003, when he was recording the most recent sort of making of. He's sort of like still pissed off. Composers are dealing with a whole bunch of people who probably have really very little idea how what they do actually happens or manifests on screen. I listen to them every day and I still don't. I can't imagine how you go, you, how you're sitting there and you're like, violence here, uh, timpani yeah. drum here, flutes, uh, you know what I mean? Like, mm-hmm. and how that all blends together. And it, it's, it's, uh, stunning. I love it. By the way, quick aside, Jerry Goldsmith also underappreciated scores for Poltergeist. score planet of the apes although a little like original planet the of the apes? original 1968 
little discordant and stuff, mm-hmm. but check those out. And then also, my favorite part of the last Star Wars movie, and I hope you caught it, was John Williams' cameo. Well, I, the musical cameo. No, John, John Williams. Oh, no, music, I didn't notice him in John it. Williams is in the movie. <laughs> Where? So when they go to, I think that planet with uh, Carrie Russell's character, Zuri or whatever the hell. Okay, um, yeah. They go into a bar. Right. And he's the bartender. Oh, I didn't even notice it that. It was like a three-second shot. That's that, hilarious. Out of the whole movie, I was like, John Williams, man. Okay, although, Bruce, that type of fan service is what ruined that movie. Oh, that's all the movie is. I, but, absolutely. Okay, I get but, it. And then another quick aside, Jerry Goldsmith has one quick cameo. I believe it's the only cameo in a Joe Dante movie. Do you know which which movie? Uh, Gremlins. Close. Gremlins 2? Uh, <laughs> Gremlins 2. <laughs> Bruce, only a diehard would go to Gremlins 2. Dude, Gremlins 2. Don't get that Gremlins 2 is better than Gremlins Tangent. I'm not saying it's better, but it is a fantastic movie (laughs) in its own right. Here's another, speaking of music, speaking of Alien, speaking of the elements that make Alien great, as I mentioned, I think one of the heroes of Alien is Terry Rawlings. Um, This is a quote he had that I found, I thought was so on the nose about something unexpected about Alien, almost when you watch it, and after the fact, if you hear him say this, you go, God, that's so right. That's such a contrary choice to what you would expect. And he's talking about the pacing of Alien. When I read it, I thought to myself, this is going to be one of the scariest things if we can get it right. You know? And I think the way we did get it right is by keeping it slow, funny enough, which is completely different than what they do today. And uh, I think the slowness of it made the moments that you wanted people to be sort of scared, then we could go as fast as we like because you, you, you sucked people into a corner and then attacked them, so to speak. And I think that's how it worked. Like many editors, you know, Terry Rawlings is so smart about making movies. And you get the sense of this guy talking, just like this guy knows so much about how and why these very mercurial things come together in specific ways and work. Let's move on to our Latchkey TV segment. Hello? This is the segment where we talk about some of the seminal television viewing experiences, viewing, seminal television viewing experiences of our guest. And Bruce, like me, were you a latchkey child? Did you frequently come home from school and have to entertain yourself at home? Every damn day. Every day. Every day. And you had access to the television. If I didn't, I probably wouldn't be here right now. Okay, so you gave me a very eclectic list of which I've chosen uh, four things to highlight. These were television shows that you said were foundational and fundamental, not only to your youth, but to your personality. Oh, yeah. And the first one is Three's Company. Come and knock on our door. Come and knock on our door. We've been waiting for you. We've been waiting for you. With the kisses are hers and hers and his. Three's Company, too. Dance on our floor. Come and dance on our floor. Take a step that is new. Take a step that is new. We've a lovable space that needs your face. Three's company too. You'll see that life is a ball again. Laughter is calling for you. Down at our rendezvous. Down at our rendezvous. Three's company too. I mean, okay. You can't get back Jack, 
Jack Tripper is a foundational part of your personality? Because I watched this show <laughs> literally every day. Like, mo And I think they, they would run like hour long, you know, like two episodes in a row. I'd watch every one. And uh, every episode is exactly the same. Yes. It is... Uh, Jack's got some kind of crazy scheme with usually with Larry, mm -hmm. and they and then someone overhears him making some kind of sexual entendre in another, in another room, and that creates yeah. uh, that's you know, your formula that creates some chaos. And Mr. Roper thinks he's gay, and then the, thinks he's not gay, and oh, at the end of the episode, yep, you're gay. Watching that opening it reminds me, you know what the secret weapon in of Three's Company is? Audra Lindley as Mrs. Yeah, Roper. Absolutely, she's actually the secret weapon of the show. And I was also thinking like they were probably both like 42 years old. <laughs> <laughs> you know? Playing sixty five. Yeah, and yeah, everybody oh my was. God. And you know, by the way, for the record, I was always a Joyce DeWitt guy, not a Suzanne Summers guy. Okay, well, that's the classy take. Yeah, and I love John Ritter. I love late career John Ritter. I love me some Sling Blade John Ritter. Oh yeah. Okay, Carl. The reason that I brought you here is to talk to you about something that's on my mind. I'm just, I'm just gonna put it right out on the table. Where do I start? Um. Linda and Frank are, are very important to me. They're like family. My own family was never like a family. They're horrible people. As a matter of fact, for years I prayed every night that my father would die. And finally I realized through a lot of therapy that I was wasting my energy on hating him. So now I just don't care. But you see, you and I are a lot alike. As strange as that may seem, I don't, I don't mean physically or even mentally, really. But, well, emotionally. Actually, the hand that we've been dealt in life, we're different. People see us as, as being different anyway. You're, well, you, you've got your affliction or whatever, and I, well, mine's not as easy to see. I'm just going to say it. I'm gay. Now that's some that's some acting. I mean, he was fantastic. He was that, great that was a, honestly like I don't want to. Uh, that was like a revelation for me <laughs> because was I was like, holy shit, that's John Ritter. Like what? He should have got a nomination for that. He didn't. That's that's sad. Somebody, somebody, Critics Choice, somebody had to have. Who's said. the genius that put him in Sling Blade? <laughs> was I it Billy Bob? It had to be. Was Billy Bob like, I need John Ritter for this part? God, you know who else is great in Sling Blade? Dwight Yoakam. Oh, yes. Yes, he is. He is great in that. Such a son of a bitch. J.T. Walsh, that guy. Billy Bob Thornton nominated for Best Actor. No Ritter. You know who did the soundtrack? No. Daniel Lenoir. Huh. I wonder if, I wonder, and I'm going to say that I don't think it does. I wonder if Sling Blade holds up now. It is so uh, 90s, no? I think it might. I think, yeah, I think it might. I mean, you I don't think? know that we think like it's so, so good. It was a thing, man. It was a thing. Because we. it was a kind of movie that like sort of was doing things that nobody else was doing at the time. True. And it, was that pre-Forrest Gump? Uh, it's 96. So, no, it was post-Forrest Gump. Forrest Gump was earlier, right? Yes. 93, 90, I believe. 92? That is a movie that does not hold up. I'm sorry. To 94. inform you. Yes. Uh, yeah, I bet Forrest Gump would feel very old-fashioned and hokey. Silly. But I bet some scenes hold up. I'm going to say maybe some scenes hold up.
Now, my next one, Bruce, this is part of why I love you. <laughs> Talk about out of left field. I wouldn't have pegged you for a Regis and Kathy Lee guy. Oh, God. Here they are. <laughs> Listen to this lineup on this episode. Oh, my God. This is pretty bad. So many memories. With Regis and Kathy Lee. Today, Just back the, in our New York great studios, we'll talk with one hell of a good fella, actor Paul Sorvino, who spends time fighting crime on TV's Law and Order. Also, hear the naked truth. One heck of a good fella. WKRP's <laughs> wild and wacky DJ is taking it all off. Meet ever so funny Michael Debar. And don't just sit there, dance to the music and I don't know that I never knew the Michael Debar era. And can what? someone possibly survive these explosive car crashes? Find out from a Hollywood stuntman who never stops testing his fate. Next on Live. <laughs> There you go. Jason, I don't care who you are. That is an entertaining hour of television. <laughs> so, Bruce, how did you stumble upon Live with Regis and Kathy? Well, Lee? so in our market, in, uh, you know. In the New York, New Jersey New area. New Jersey area. It was on, I believe, at like 10 in the morning or something like that. Yeah, so weren't you supposed to be at school? I sure was, but I was out of school a lot. When you I were? Kid, I was. For, you mean by choice or because you were sickly? Uh... For a variety of reasons, a little, a little from column A, a little from column B. Okay. Um, it was at. Uh, you were home a lot. I was home a lot, and I was at my grandmother's a lot, um, because things like oh, our our lights would go off, and we'd sure. have to live with my grandmother for a month. Things like that. You sure. know what I mean? Not a lot of parenting going on. No, none. <laughs> Raised by wolves. Yes, and like wolves as well. And so you would watch Regis and Kathy Lee because. Was it an oasis of kind of good feeling? Like you're kind of safe with Regis and Kathy Lee? Like did you get enveloped in that kind of, not that it's mindless, but you know, it's relentlessly yeah. positive and cheerful if you're having, Absolutely. if you're living in an uncertain circumstance, I could imagine gravitating to this. Yes, and Regis is such a such a character. He's You great. know, he's, he's just like, how do you not? And, and that simmering hatred he clearly had for Kathy Lee. No, that, that, that is he, not that. true, Bruce. <laughs> that is so not true. I think I honestly like the variety of it because yeah. there was that open... <laughs> you mean Richard Simmons to Hollywood stuntman, stuntman you know what I mean? To, like, <laughs> to Pauly Sorvino. And it was like, it was like okay, you got that opening where they oh. talk about silly crap they did yeah. in their lives. Then they sure. would go to Gelman. Remember Gelman? Oh, Gelman, yeah, you of know, course. Like he would, is he still on? He's probably still on the show. Yeah, isn't Gelman like on The View or something I now? I have no idea. But like, you know, they'd go to him like, hey, Gelman, what'd you do this weekend? You know, that kind of <laughs> stuff. It was great. And make fun of him. All right, now another out of left field choice for you, Bruce, is 227, oh, starring baby. Jack Hay. I love Jack Hay. What the, what, how, how, explain as we watch the open. Surprising cast here. Of course, the great Marla Gibbs. Regina I King. love how Williams is such a great, oh yeah, a great TV player. There she is. Remember when Jack Hay was like a huge star yes, on TV? Yes, I do. I had a big crush on Jack. How about Helen Martin? That's a pro. Fantastic. Man. That oh. is old school. And Regina King. Regina King. I forgot that Regina King was on this show. Absolutely. That's amazing. How the hell? Did you get into 227 not being I mean, a middle-class African-American yourself? I, I, I guess it was just one like on the lineup or it was in you know syndication at some point. Yeah. And I just was like, this is a funny show. I think it was a little close. So like, for instance, with 
not so much Three's Company, but like a lot of shows, people are living a little bit above my means. Sure. This was a very middle class show. And this is actually a pretty underrated show, 227. I think it's a pretty good show. And yeah. I think the the kind of values of it and the the warmth of it were were it was well cast and it was different. And watching it again, I was like, God, that's such a moment when Jack Hay was like a big TV right. star. And and by the way, speaking of which, like I grew I never saw I again, this is I'm not trying to sound like uh you know sort of social justice warrior or anything, mm-hmm. but like, honestly, growing up, like I didn't, I didn't, this didn't read to me like, oh, this is a black family. Yeah. Well, this is an era of TV where it, it's sort of weird. Like, I don't want to say we were more advanced then than we are now. I mean, in, in that way, but in, in this way, way yeah. we kind of were because yeah. this show now would be so differently presented to the largely white audience it's pitched at. Right. Like, isn't that show that's on, I don't know if it's still on, on ABC, Blackish, blackish, isn't that kind of about how things are different now? You know what I mean? How yeah. like, well, they're not. That's white, a good show. You know what I mean, it is a good show, but I'm just saying, like, it, back in the day, it was like this is not presented as. Yeah. It, it, you didn't. This is a family. Exactly. Yeah. It's a family, and and they're great characters, and mm-hmm. they get into funny situations, and they love. Jo- family ties, I wasn't that into because it tended to be a little maudlin for me. It tended to be a See, little. Yeah, like too, I was a maudlin kid. Yeah, I did. Like I hated Mash. Oh, loved Mash. Hated Mash. Like, could not say when the song came on, I would leave the room. Like, wow. I was, yeah. You were just, afraid of the feels. I think you so. couldn't tap. I think that the theme to Mash and maudlin things might have, if the lid came off, if your egg case lid came off, to use an alien right. analogy, something would have sprung out of you that you weren't prepared to handle at the time. Probably. Because, hey, you know what? <laughs> there was plenty to cry about. <laughs> I mean, I didn't need to do it on TV. So you like too. to laugh. And um, the last one I'm going to play for you out of your choice is such a great choice and such a great show. Uh, Always a pleasure to revisit Night Court. Yes. Super authentic. Super authentic New York York City Open. Great. Marky Post. Marky Post. Thank you. I don't know what I was thinking, Christine. One of the funkier TV themes. Oh, yes. John Larroquette. <laughs> this brings you back, doesn't it? Such a great premise. Did you know that prior to Night Court in 1976 and 1977... There was a show called Sirota's Court on NBC. No. Which has a shockingly similar premise. What? Yeah, I'm going to play this for you. I had not heard of this before, but I think you're going to appreciate this. This is the city. It could be your city. Lucky for you, it's not. What a jungle. Yes, this city, like many others, is a victim of rising crime. Tell me, I live with bars on my windows while the crooks are out on the streets. I bought one of those Doberman dogs. They beat him up. And where does the average citizen find justice? Not here, buddy. Ooh, could we use Superman now? Ah, nobody cares. Nobody? What about the Honorable Matthew J. Sirota of Night Court? Oh, he's the one who's tough but fair. Oh, yeah, he's a nice man. Where is the best defense against the rising tide of crime? Where is a civil servant who is working overtime? Where is a man who gives the law his heartiest support? I'll tell you where Sirota's caught. Where is it 
step down and out and get an even break. There's a place of government where no one's on the take. Where is a home of justice of a very different sort? I will tell you where some roses Yes, yeah, Sirota's Court. Wow. That no, was Night wow. Court in 1976. And what, uh, Night Court, what did that start? Like 84? 84, yeah. So only a few years later. Yeah. Recycle that shit. So, just so you know, everything Thank old you. is new again, Bruce. Thank you for bringing that to my attention. That is. <laughs> I hope that doesn't ruin Night Court for you. Hell no. Night Court was a, was a beautiful, glimmering gem of a show. That is unsurpassed. By the way, Harry Anderson had a huge office in that in that show. Remember his office? Oh yes, yes. His, oh, his he's chambers, a judge. You know, but geez. judges live large, Bruce. With all his magic tricks and that's a good. You have an authentic early '80s TV childhood. Oh, absolutely. Well, Bruce, thank you for coming on. I've enjoyed our conversation. I've enjoyed getting into Alien. Me as well. I'm glad neither one of us ate noodles and had a chestburster. Thank incident. you for the suggestion of bringing in the Chinese food to pay homage to the chestburster scene. I'm All sure engineer Matt will appreciate the sounds of chewing that he now has to deal with throughout the recording. I, I did try to back away. <laughs> Awesome when you were coughing, chewing and coughing, and I'm going to cut all that out. No one yeah. will hear you cough. In, in the full cast and crew podcast studio, much like space, no one can hear you cough. What? That was a mic drop. Bye. Bye.